Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm interviewing Leslie Pate McKinnon, on Adoption, Attachment, MPE, and Attraction. Today's episode is an incredibly honest, deep-dive conversation with Leslie Pate McKinnon. She is an LCSW. She is a seasoned and well-respected therapist in both the adoption community and MPE. That stands for Misattributed Parentage Experience. That basically means the experience of finding out that the parents you always thought were your biological parents are actually your adopted parents. Leslie presents nationally and internationally on issues that impact families conceived through adoption and third-party reproduction. She trains therapists and agencies and universities across the United States on the complex issues that accompany adoption and MPE. She offers individual consultation and supervision groups for therapists and provides more intensive training seminars and workshops for professionals looking to become adoption and MPE competent. Leslie's story is included in the book, The Girls Who Went Away, and the documentary, A Girl Like Her by Ann Fessler. She's been on Good Morning America with Robin Roberts and on CNN discussing the impact of the internet on adoption. Most recently, she was featured in Dan Rather's investigative report, Adoption or Abduction. Her email address is public and I will put it in the show notes for you if you'd like to reach out and contact her. This is a powerful episode where we both get real raw and honest I've been told by some of y'all that my episodes are like gut punches sometimes, but in a really good way. And I hope that if this hits you as a gut punch, that it's in that, that really good way, that way that removes those veils and helps us see with more and more clarity. This is an episode requiring maturity, empathy, compassion, and a real willingness to question some of our collective and individualized preconceived notions and all the feelings associated with those preconceived notions. Remember, this podcast is Emotional Badass, and I am committed to talking about the taboo things that I think are plaguing our human tribe. 
I'm choosing this topic because I do think that it is a very, very big issue. We have so many issues that are pushing against our population that are creating so much depression and anxiety, PTSD, apathy, loneliness, disconnection, addiction, and we have a skyrocketing American suicide rate. I hope that y'all get whatever you need out of this deep dive conversation between me and Leslie. Light and love and on to the interview. So I am here with Leslie Pate McKinnon, and I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for meeting with me and being willing to do this, Leslie. Absolutely. An invitation to be a badass? Who would pass that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really, really excited to talk to you because I want to be able to pick your brain about your expertise about adoption, and you are a counselor, you're a therapist, so... Just the issues that come up around adoption. I think a lot of us have a lot of, what is the right word? Assumptions about adoption when we think adoption. I think most of us picture the little newborn baby getting adopted by the family and growing up and maybe one day wanting to to reunite. And that's certainly part of the narrative of what happens in adoption. But there's so much more than that. And there's so many familial attachment issues that come up around adoption. Mm-hmm. So where do you like to jump in when you're talking about this topic? Well, I can tell you that a lot of times uh, meeting someone new, they'll say, oh, you're a therapist. Do you specialize in anything mm-hmm. or just, you know, and I say, yes, families that are created through adoption and third party reproduction. And everybody goes, Oh, that's so wonderful. And I say, no, no, no. I don't deal with the wonderful. I deal with the aftermath, the psychological aftermath of what happens to individuals and families when they decide to create their family this way. Um, And I don't say that to try to make it heavy, but we were told in days of old that adoption is just like having your own child. You you know, we'll hand you this blank little slate and it's like grafting a new limb onto a tree and they'll never be curious and you are their family and there's nothing different about it than having a biological child. And that is horse manure (laughs) times a hundred because it is quite different than that. Unfortunately, society has taken taken the bait, taken the picture, taken the view that the adoption marketing business, which is a multi, listen to me, multi-billion dollar um, organizational, whatever I'm trying to say, you know, it's anyway, it's, it's big and it makes lots of money all over the world and they have lots of marketing and people are still believing that's what adoption's like. So one of the biggest things is educating the public. But guess what? It's even educating your clients because while they are in the throes of some issues that were probably caused by adoption or third party, they don't even know it. And so you have to educate them. And how can somebody have something going on that they don't even know about? Well, 
the biggest psychological um, issue is the disconnect from the mother. And in the way of donor eggs or donor sperm or donor embryos, again, it's the disconnect from the biological person who donated. And that's huge. And I, I can kind of get sometimes with, I'm so tired of trying to educate people, why society is still seeing that other view. But who I really want to reach, Nikki, are therapists, because okay. we need to get over that. This is huge. It's the most intense work I've done in a nearly 50-year career is the work in this field. But as I go back to that, um, the loss of mother and child is pre-verbal for the person mm-hmm. that gets separated. And what I mean is it is a trauma. It's a huge trauma. And we now, with all the brain work, can see exactly how the trauma plays out. But um, but they were an infant. They know nothing about that up here. They don't have language to go with it, saying, hey, where's my mom? Um but lots of babies that are placed, you know, cry and cry and cry for the yeah. first few months. And the pediatrician diagnoses them with colic. No, they're looking for their mom. Yeah. And so you know, we don't like that story. Uh, no, as human no, beings. no, no, like, no. We're very uncomfortable looking mm-hmm. at that or feeling that. So I think most people will go out of their way to not look at that part of it. And wow, like if you want a baby or you want a child and you have adoption in your heart, Wow, I have so much compassion for how easy it would be to slide into not wanting to know that information. But if you don't know that information, you also can't tend to what that child needs and wants, because I think we will always be a human race where adoption and and other people taking other children in, where it will be the human condition no matter what, because not everybody that gets pregnant and has a baby is equipped or, or wants to, and they may be very inadequate or just not, they might not know how to take care of themselves. And so they're doing this loving thing too. That's part of the story too. And we have that old psychology that those old beliefs of, well, they're a baby. So they just won't remember. Like we just won't know anything that happens to us. I've thought a lot about early childhood trauma because I almost died when I was born. And, and there, it, there's, There's this way that it's hard for our conscious adult selves to really look at that. Well, how would that affect a baby? Like the baby doesn't know what's going on around it, except the baby has a sensory system. It has its nervous system and it has its instincts, maybe in a more prime, not maybe, definitely in a more primal survivorship way that that baby is screaming for -hmm. their mother. So, So what do we do with that? What do we do with that if if we want to put a baby up for adoption? What do we do with that if we want to adopt? How do we process that? What do we do knowing that, okay, there is this trauma of the baby leaving the mother's body when everything in that baby and everything in that mother's body is is biologically programmed to stay attached and to, to that baby screams and cries so that the mother tends to them and doesn't lose them. So what do we do with that if these are the realities? Well, and my reality even goes a little further back. When I came into the field 
in the 1970s, um, the focus was on family preservation. Mm, okay. Okay. And what does that mean? Like, tell people what that means. That means, like, how can you help a family stay together rather than having them have to make that heart-wrenching decision to place a child because the number one reason worldwide that children are placed is poverty. Yes. Number one reason all over the world and that they're in a crisis. Mm -hmm. The other myth is that mothers are freely giving up their children. No, they're not. Mm -hmm. They're the people I work with. They're in agony. Uh, but feel they have no other options. So that's why I back up. I was just, I loved Reverend Tutu. And he, I saw one of his quotes the other day and it said, you know, maybe at some point we should quit plucking the people out of the river before they drown and go back and look at what was making them fall in. Mm -hmm. Okay. So actually, um, if we could lower the adoption rates, and guess what? England, now this is a few years ago, this is a little dated, but they got into really looking at family preservation and they did 12 adoptions in one year. 12. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So you can very much minimize it, but the industry, I'm going to go ahead and say it, preys on young women in crisis. You know, can we help you? Are you thinking about adoption? So people call because they're trying to figure out all their options. But once they get in that chute, there is a um, psychological tearing down of the birth mother. You know, make a list of what you could give this child and what a married couple could give this child. Ooh, make that's a list. how they do that? Ooh. Yes. It's all about... Let us reinforce the fact that there's no way you can parent. Okay. So <laughs> it's bigger than that question. But what gets really interesting is because the adoption numbers have gone down over the years and the countries all around the world have started shutting down because adoption is so full of corruption. And it's not just in Indonesia. It's not just in Africa. It's also in America, okay? Um, what I'm describing to you, I think, is subtle, and sometimes it's not too subtle, coercion. So um, if we back up and we could lower the numbers, that would fix a whole lot of things. I used to say, you know, everybody complains because there's not enough post-adoption services, but if we lowered the number of adoptions, we wouldn't need them. And that's really a biggie. Now, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i say two things about that. One is in the third-party re reproduction field, they're just beginning to find out that, guess what? If you take an egg from someone, if you take a sperm from someone, when that someone grows up, they have a innate primal need to go meet that parent that donated to get some mirroring about who they really are. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody expected that when we were just giving away cells and gametes that anybody was going to have any feeling about it, but they do. They have tremendous feeling about it. 
The other thing in the adoption community is, and this is hard for me because I've worked with many families who've adopted and have their heart in the right place and are willing to learn all these things. But many adult adoptees say, you know, if you um, uh, what needed a new body part because one of yours was failing, would you go take somebody else's? What makes you think when you're struggling with infertility that you have a right to someone else's child? Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to think about the fact of, you know, in days of old, people who were infertile and it was terrible. It's an awful thing to be infertile, but that's how they live their lives. So when you hear adult adoptees, you will hear a lot of people speak about that. It's kind of like, it's not just a given right that you get to have kids. Wow. So this hits a lot of maybe American psychology of we want what we want and we should be able to have it. Absolutely. And, you know, infertility is on the rise. Infertility is increased by 50% over the last, I don't know if it's six or 10 years, but you know, and again, that's our culture. Well, I want my career first. Well, I want to do this. Well, then we decided we'd travel all over. And okay, so I'm 40 and now I'm ready. But your body was ready in your 20s. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in the infertility world, they look at 30s as old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I'm hearing you say that we have this golden sort of idea of adoption that has really made us the most comfortable. And that in, for me, lots of things in this world, we very much want that black or white, all or nothing. Something is all good or all bad. We want that simplification of it. And I don't think I've ever thought about adoption this way until talking to you about this, but there, there really has to be to really look at something. You have to really be willing to look at the pros and the cons and, and really be able to see it like separate from what our egos sense about it or are scared to look at about it so that we really can see a full picture of, of what this is. Can you share a little bit about your own story? Sure, sure. Um, my story is that at the age of 17, I had just graduated from high school, you know, the cheerleader with the football player oh. and we got pregnant the summer after we graduated high school. We were going to get married. He was my first true love, and I think I was his. Uh, and then his parents put the kibosh on that. No, I wasn't going to marry their precious little son. And in fact, you know, how did he know it was his? Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And um, long story short, we didn't get married. And so I was sent to a Catholic unwed mother's home a hundred miles away and lived there and then ended up relinquishing my son because that's what you did in that day. And especially if your parents told you to, um, you did what they said. And that's what I did. And then I plummeted into a huge, deep depression for the next years and About a year and a half later, very first date with an old boyfriend that I'd had from earlier in high school. And 
I woke up the next morning after the date and I tell people, you may not know what rebel yell is unless you live in the South, but it's the most awful bourbon you can imagine. (laughs) And with one pint of rebel yell between me and my date, I remember nothing about the night afterwards. But the next morning I kept thinking, oh, I didn't, did I? Did I? No, 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 no. He went ahead and shipped off to Vietnam. And within six weeks, I was throwing up. So, uh, yes, I did. Don't remember it, but I certainly did it. And um, I was so horrified, Nikki, that I had done this yet a second time. Like, really, lady, you didn't know what caused the first one Um, that I told no one. And I ended up after that first year of college moving back home and I delivered my baby myself in the bathroom, you hear stories about this and people always go, oh my God, you must've been crazy. Disassociated was what I was, totally disassociated. I knew I was pregnant, but it was kind of like, well, I'll think of something. I'll think of something here in a minute. And then I gave birth. Um, Living with a family, by the way, who didn't notice I was pregnant, but that was partly purposeful. I gained 75 pounds so that nobody would notice. But anyway, and nobody asked me then. They just took my son away and placed him for adoption. So that is my story. And I kept that secret for 25 years. And I went on to become a therapist And I kept thinking, well, I ought to be able to help somebody given what I have been through. And there was a lot of other family things. And that's what I did. And really, I kind of lived two lives. There was this hurting part of me over here that nobody knew about, but it was big. And then there was this very successful therapist going through life. um, And she looked like she was doing fine. But once my sons found me, by the way, And the story started coming out. It was like absolute and total freedom. And that statement that gets so cliche, the truth will set you free, is the absolute gospel. Because it was like just pounds lifted off of me. I thought when I'd go to say it out loud, people would run out the door. And instead they said, oh, you poor thing. I didn't expect that. So it has set me free. It set me a new course in the work that I do. I learned so much about it. And um, and I, I think that's good. I'm very, very glad that I'm able to do this work. Mm. So in the way that things aren't black or white, good or bad, is this a positive for adoption now that we don't think of it as a dirty secret anymore, that 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 more and more and more people, if they are adopted, they know always instead of that secrecy, that shame influence secrecy? Mm-hmm. Um, it is much more accepted about telling children that they are adopted, that in days of old, they would hide that because it made you a little less than a biological mm-hmm. child. Um, but we're I'd say we're 98% there, but I've seen numerous parents 
who came to see me when their child was 20 and getting ready to go to the military or something was going on. I spoke to a woman yesterday who found out she was adopted at 36. Um, so there are still instances where that happens. It's terrible for the person to get that impact at a later time in life. Yeah. Earth shattering, um, I would imagine. It, it, it turns their whole world upside down because there's one quote that people always say, if you decided not to tell me that, what other things have you kept from me? And yeah, that's the problem with breaking trust. Right. That tr- right. And no matter what the trust break is, that that is what how our psyche healthily really is, processes yeah. that well then what it, it tests our reality and it's scary right. it's, it's truly scary. terrifying to wonder scary. well what's real now have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting well we hear you and we have been there too that's why we launched the bites of health podcast Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. Right, right. Now, I do want to say for birth mothers, for mothers who give birth and do end up relinquishing, there's... um. <laughs> we just can't win for losing because they hear a lot of, oh, really? You're going to give your baby away? Oh, I could never do that. Before the birth, they hear from adoptive parents, you are the bravest, most courageous woman in the world. Oh, what you're doing is so wonderful. And I said, there was nothing wonderful about it. I had my back up against the wall. There were no options. And even though I come from an earlier time when society was ruling on that too, there's still for women that place today, they don't have any other options at the moment. A big quote in adoption is, pregnancy is a temporary crisis. It's not permanent. And things settle down, usually within a few months. One of the countries, it's one of the Scandinavian countries that has the lowest um, adoption rate of the Scandinavian countries. They send a mother home with a bassinet full of diapers and food and so forth. It's about equals $500. And those mothers parent. Mm. You see, if you haven't got the money for diapers, you're not going to let your child go through that. If you haven't got the money to be able to have a job and then pay childcare, 
ha ha ha. You know, even I couldn't, <laughs> I could hardly do that when I raised my children at 40. It was so expensive. So, mm-hmm. and we're in this lot. more and more and more expensive time where everything is just harder and harder and harder financially. Exactly. Exactly. So, Mothers didn't really win before we were fallen women. And now we're like, you're going to do what? Or you get this out of context praise, which I will tell you for us mothers is very off-putting. It's like, don't praise me for giving away my flesh and blood. Please don't praise me for that. I didn't want to do that. So So a more honest interaction there might be. I'm sorry you're in this position. Exactly. Exactly. That must be hard. Do you get to see your child? Is it an open adoption? Is it closed? We do much more open adoption these days because guess what? That's what's best for the child. Say more about that. Yeah. Talk about how open adoption works, why that's better, like how that meets the needs of or attempts to meet the needs of all the players. Right. And it and it does. It does some really good things. But I've been at this long enough to find out that it doesn't really solve the problem, but it does help. And what that's about is like my sons in my era, and they're still told this, in a closed adoption, what you hear is your mother loved you so much. I mean, think about it. She gave you life and then gave you up. And I had a physician sitting in my office one day and he was about 60 and he looked at me and said, how is it that she loved you so much? She gave you away. Does that compute to you? It doesn't compute to a child. Yeah. Um, so if you have an open adoption from day one and the child grows up knowing that the mother is peripherally involved in their life, maybe comes to a birthday party, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe in the best of open adoptions, I see they'll vacation in the summers, the two families, if you will, and allow the children to play together. Well, this is great for a child. Number one they know she really does love me. If she stuck this out all this time with me, she does care about me. Okay. Because love is more than a statement of words. It's, it's an actionable experience. Yes. Yes. And secondarily, it allows the child to mirror. What do we do in adolescence? We are forming our identity. If you go to an adolescent treatment center right now, it will be 60 to 80% full of adoptees, lots of them international. Because when you go through the process of trying to develop your identity, which happens in adolescence, you can't do that without some mirroring. You're just guessing. Okay. So it makes us feel untethered. Totally. Totally. So in those two big ways, it really helps an adoptee growing up. The interesting thing I've been seeing, Nikki, and sometimes it's only for a period of time, but the the open's been around so long that there are a lot of kids that have grown up and now they're adults. And they often, (laughs) the first thing they do is cut off the relationship with their birth family. You gave me up. See ya. Mm, I can see that being a way that that rebellious teenage time plays out. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that they won't come around later and relook at that and maybe reawaken that relationship. Uh, but it's it's usually in the younger years, early 20s, late teens, that the adoptee says, you know, here, you take it. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's always better than closed. Always. And in fact, in the infertility world, not the physicians, because they're only focused on one thing, and that's the almighty dollar. But a lot of the therapists, a lot of the people going through infertility, if they choose to use a donor, are starting to get the idea, make it a known donor, mm-hmm. have meet them before there are some, I think it's in Australia, you, the two of you have to meet before you donate and be sure what you think, because that's your child's biological parent. And a lot of times, guess what? The biological parent doesn't get it. They're just given a few cells and they get $10,000, but there's no money involved, right? Nice of them. They they couch that money in all kinds. Oh, it was your travel expenses. Oh, it was this. Oh, it was that. But anyway, they're not sometimes old enough and aware enough to realize those cells they're giving other people are going to be their children out there in the world. Yeah. And we're living in a time where celebrities are often using surrogates and we only hear what's beautiful and lovely about that. Absolutely. Really, really like what an, unco- like this, this is probably going to piss off a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what would, what would you say to, to a surrogate about this? What would you say to uh, two gay men that are in relationship that, that are doing this? Like how, how do they respect themselves and their children? Well, and that's really a, a huge segment of people who are choosing donors mm-hmm. are the um, gay and lesbian community because they aren't going to have a child any other way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that a lot of them are angry about that, about how unfair that is, that they look out into the world and see everybody else kind of, you know, it's so easy to accidentally get knocked up right. for so many people that... Right. And then people who try and really want it to like, and put so much effort and mm-hmm. medical avenues to get that done, that this really is the, as they see it, the most loving, like healthiest, like kind of rightest way we can possibly make this work. So mm-hmm. what a hard thing to not just have all the shiny light, you know, angel kind of music playing right. around this dynamic. And I wish I had a good answer. Um, because I, again, I really feel for people who want a parent and are good parents. But one of the things I often say, and people don't want to hear it, is do you know how many children are languishing in foster care while you're creating your perfect baby? Okay. And a lot of times, guess what? That perfect baby is an embryo they bought at the clinic came from an egg donor in Philadelphia and a sperm donor in Miami. And they made a bunch of embryos and now they sell them for $30,000, a transfer. Okay. So what I tell people is educate yourself. This isn't going to stop your right overnight or maybe ever in the infertility world. I pray 
that in the infertility world, they'll finally get so good that they can use the people's gametes. In other words, now that's not always going to help in a with a gay or lesbian couple because they need another kind of gamete. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you can use, if it's a heterosexual couple, then that, you know, gets around it being a foreign person's gametes. Um, but I don't have all the answers. There, there aren't good answers. And I'm terribly sorry about that. I wish I could say so. Um, but I just think education is imperative. If you're going to go down this route, for goodness sakes, please educate yourself. Another little factoid we've discovered over the years is adoptees attempt suicide at four times a greater rate than other in adolescence, other adolescents. Oh yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anybody name that statistic. The the PD, the um, society for pediatricians finally put out a statement about that so that all of their patients would know that because there's a significant suicide rate. I don't know how that's going to play out in third party reproduction. I don't know if it is going to play out, but um, that's something you need to think about. Why is that happening? What's going on? So the more you educate yourself, you may have adopted, you know, 10 years ago or used a donor, but educate yourself. There's so many ways to do it today to what the issues are your kids might have. Like when I raised boy, girl twins, my son was incredible at soccer. So we drove to the next state in the summer and took him to soccer camp. And we did this. We wanted to help the things about them we wanted to accentuate. Why wouldn't you do that with a child that came through donor conception? Yes. Why wouldn't you do that with an adoptee? Now there are all kinds of Facebook groups where adult donors conceived individuals educate new, uh, they call them RPs, receiving parents. Okay. Um, And the same for adult adoptees, educating foster parents and newer adoptive parents. These are the issues your kids are likely to have. They may not. But here's how you handle it. At least could we do that? Well, I think humans in this modern era, we don't really know what to do with our feelings a lot of the time, just in general. And with a topic like this, like I'm picturing all the people that I know that have ever adopted or used a sperm donor, uh, the gay couples that I know that have sought out getting a child. And I can picture them being really pissed off hearing this because from this ego place of, I had to do this harder journey than the average person. And I did it exactly right as I was told to. And I've done everything right for my child. And now you two asshole therapists are going to come along and tell me I'm doing it wrong. And it's uncomfortable with this knowledge. And I think that's why we buck and resist a lot of the, a lot of the hard stuff, but it's not about feeling bad or guilty. That's such a, yeah. There's nowhere to go with that. It's about how do we give each child and each parent more of the emotional tools to cope with life. None of us are going to have this idealized life situation adopted or not. Not a one of us out there. And if we haven't realized that as grownups by the time we're in our 30s or 40s or 50s, 
I think we're going to have a harder time on the planet. So this really is about being able to put that, that, that responsive or reactive ego reaction about hearing something that sounds like it comes out of left field to the side and really sit mm -hmm. with what might this mean? How do I nurture myself through this? How do I nurture this child through this? How do I let go of some of these ideas I've had to actually meet this child right where, right where they are? And you just said it. The woman who trained me said, if you will always make the child your compass, you'll never go wrong. Oh, I love that. So if I'm thinking of what's best for the child, getting myself out of the way. And yes, I have needs too. Yes. And, and I do think that gay and lesbian couples have a really difficult time because they've already had to combat society about yeah. being gay or, you know, whatever. And then to have this added on top, it is a double whammy. I do. I do think it is. But if you think about what the child needs, like for me with little Wyatt Cooper, <laughs> Anderson's little baby son, if you always put his needs first, his needs to know. I worked with clients who wanted to meet their surrogate. I was in her body. Yes. Yeah. I want to meet her. Of course. You must be kidding. Yeah, I've yeah. met surrogates who try to ask questions later, certainly donors who say later, did anybody get born out of my eggs? You know, the problem is, yes, the answer may be 300 people. So that's why the fertility clinics and the donors don't want to tell you because they are working in a very unregulated system and they like it that way. I had never thought no about rules. adoption as an industry. Oh, until you said that out loud. And once yeah. you say that out loud, of course, I say that about addiction. I'm an addiction specialist and addiction is such a big industry. And there's such an ethical problem for me and how you get to treat both sides of it. And adoption is very similar in that way to addiction that the same people that for decades and decades and decades have created the way that things are also mm -hmm. treat the way that they created it. If that makes sense, the way I'm yes, saying it. It does. I have done some work. I'm not a specialist in addiction, but I've certainly done some work over the years. And I often say adoption and addiction have a lot in common because, you know, the person who's got the problem is the last to know. Mm. Okay. And so point. that's true too of an adoptee growing up. They may not know what's getting in the way of them making lasting relationships. They may not know why they're so incredibly anxious and easily triggered. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know anything about adoption. I, honest engine, thought I had done the best I could out of a wreck of my teenage years to provide for my sons. When I found them, and they found me, Finding out all I did about adoption was crushing. I bet. It still is. My sons are in their 50s and they have lifelong difficulties because of being adopted and because of being adopted in a closed system. I didn't know that was going to happen. Nobody tells an expectant mother that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. 
she does not get any kind of informed consent, not at all, because there are no regulations that make that have to happen. You can get your appendix out and hear of all the things that could go wrong, okay, but probably won't. But you give up a child, a life, and you do not hear any of the things that could happen. None. Because you're talking to the agency or the adoption attorney. Okay. And that's their livelihood. They're not going to tell you. In fact, I confronted one attorney group once because um, they were all adoption attorneys. They were all very nice people. And I noticed on their website that they offered mothers lifelong counseling. And I said, well, what's that about? Well, a lot of mothers need it. Again, back to my statement by Reverend Tutu. So we'll offer them lifelong counseling after we take their child that created the need for lifelong counseling. Mm-hmm. What's wrong in this picture? So education, education, education. That's why I was thrilled when you said you would interview me because any place I can educate a few more people and I know they don't like me and I know they don't want to hear it. And I'm really, really sorry, but I'm thinking about your kids. I say that a lot. That that resonates with me. I I often say to my individual clients at a point, I know that you are my client and you Mm -hmm. think you're my client, but actually your children are my client. And, And I believe in that lens. I ask a lot of people, oh, would you advise a child to be that way with themselves? No. Well, then why are you being that way with yourself? It really is the compass that cuts through the bullshit, frankly, and and really gets at what are we trying to do here? What is the goal and gets us past our ego? Because most of us, if we're good empathic people, if we're not narcissists, if we're not sociopaths, um, if we're not so lost in addiction that it's cutting off our empathy, if we are grounded, reasonable people, that cuts through all of it. All all of us who are grounded, reasonable people want what's best for children, whatever that means, even when we come from different camps of, of what that means. I, I want to make a point of this too, because I, I'm thinking of the people who listen to my show, that they're seekers, that they value emotional intelligence, um, that they are looking to grow and expand, um, that they may have more muscles than the average population about receiving um, some information that may rub them the wrong way. And I, I teach to really sit with that. Yeah. Um, I want to, I can picture a lot of people who listen to the show and maybe have adopted and have kids that are no longer babies or in elementary school, how I think there's a catch. I think a lot of them would say, I have a great relationship. I talk about all of this with my child. My child doesn't need to meet their surrogate. My child doesn't need to meet their sperm donor. They're totally secure. You don't know me. You can't say this. This doesn't apply to me and my family and my child. And what I want to say there is, that is such a catch 22 to, to be the parent having that conversation with the child. That child is going to want to also protect the parent at a certain age from these realities too. And so that there's really a risk of some, some codependence, even in like some of the healthiest relationships where you think you have this open dialogue, because these are some of the hardest things in our society to say out loud. Yes. And so to consider that that's a position to put a 13 or a 15 or even a 19 or 25-year-old in the position of looking at them as, as your adoptive parent and saying, do you need this? Is this really what you need? I can support you if you need it. Their fear in a way that they might not even be able to articulate can be, well, 
I've already been in a psychological way, not in a cognition kind of way, but in a psychological subconscious way can be, I've already been given up by one family. I can't alienate this mother or this father by saying I might want something else until that rebellion stage kicks in. Okay, y'all, this is about the halfway point for our discussion. If you want to listen to part two right now, this very moment, come find us at patreon.com backslash emotional badass. Part two will be released right here on the public feed, but not until next week. And yes, that is a shameless cliffhanger plug to ask you to support us on Patreon. We can't do this show without you. When you support us on Patreon, it is a vote and it's an action toward keeping the show advertisement free. Podcasting a high quality show every single week that sounds good to our highly sensitive ears takes me and this team that supports me a high level of dedication. We are about to have our four year anniversary. We have never missed a weekly release. We know that inflation is getting everyone. If you happen to have the space in your budget and you feel like you benefit from the show, please consider supporting us, supporting you and all the listeners who download the podcast every single week in almost all countries across the world. Thank you for being willing to lean into personal growth work to make your life more peaceful, more satisfying, and more fulfilling. When we take on this healing work in our own lives, we do it for ourselves and our families, the people we love. And we do it for and we model it for the rest of the world. This is how we make the world a better place, one person, one day at a time, cleaning up and tending to our own side of the street. Thank you for your courage taking on this topic. Part two goes deeper, y'all, where we explore genetic attraction and many, many, many more issues as they relate to adoption and reconnection and attachment. Light and love. I'm an emotional badass. Leslie is an emotional badass. And you are an emotional badass. And together, we are where Moxie meets mindful. Light and love. Bye-bye. <laughs>